It's Monday night at a special time, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. This is the show for folks who wish that Lex Luthor was the evilest of evil that was currently running for the presidential uh, election. Uh, tonight, we've got a special time and a special guest, uh, first-time guest. Right and left is joining us. Uh, he is uh, born and raised in Canadian prairies. He's kicked out of math class for animating in the corner of a textbook, and he failed art class for drawing comics instead of following the class curriculum. Uh, he now draws comics and works as an animator in the video game industry, and his uh, next comic out is Rust, the Boy Soldier, which is out March 23rd from Arkea and Boom Studios. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Uh, so I guess the, the first place I always like to start is um, how did you actually get into um, into comics and, and start creating them? Um, well, I've been, I've been reading comics uh, most of my life, as I think anyone who's involved in comics would probably – um, be able to relate with. I was pretty young when my dad bought me a subscription to Spider-Man. And so I used to get Spider-Man like rolled up in my, um, uh, in my mailbox once a month. It was kind of funny back in the day, they'd roll it up and an elastic band it and I'd go down to the, go down the driveway, you know, once a month to check to see if it was there. So that's kind of what got me hooked on comics to begin with. Um, I took a little break from reading comics you know, in like my late teens and then kind of was picking up some books again in my early twenties. And, and it, it's just such an accessible, um, it's such an accessible, uh, medium to work in that you can kind of tell a story and you get to control everything. And that it's, it was always kind of appealing to me for that. So, um, I think it was, Daisy Cutter that I read from Kazoo Kibishi that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And it was just a different format that I'd read before. And that kind of kicked me off. It was like, oh, I could do a book like this. I think I could, you know, if, if uh, Kazoo's doing this with Daisy Cutter, I feel like I could do a book that looks like this. If people would read it. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling. And uh, I started on a, a small book uh, called David. Um, it's a story of the biblical character David, a shepherd boy, and um, that was the first book I did. It wasn't very popular, but um, that's what started me creating comics, and I kind of never stopped after that. Oh. Uh, so a big question that I've got is that um, with Rust, how did you actually come about the idea of Rust? Rust had a couple of different forms um because i've worked in video games for my my whole life pretty much my whole career um originally the idea was kind of a few sketches and pieces of concept art and um a coworker of mine kind of looked over my shoulder and said wow what's what's that kid with a jetpack and i said oh, i don't really know and he said well you should because it looks cool it looks like it should be some kind of story so initially it kind of turned into a uh, pitch for a video game at the time, which was many years ago. And uh, that didn't work out, but um, a story kind of evolved. Eventually, I kind of got a little bit more traction in, in the comic book industry and uh, ended up pitching it to a publisher um, kind of as in the way that uh, readers see it right now, which is uh, you know a, a long graphic novel series. 
So uh, originally it was actually going to be a video game. Interesting. Um, when you're kind of coming up with it, did you always want it to be a graphic novel, or did you at any point think about doing it as a monthly comic? No, I think that the way that I tell stories in comics and and, and readers of Russ will will probably agree with this. I, I do it a little bit differently, and I take a lot of liberties with panels and pacing. And I just don't think that Russ would have ever made a very good, um, you know, regular monthly comic. Um, I I like to tell stories in a big chunk of pages, so um, so I'd always kind of in, envisioned it as a as a graphic novel. I never envisioned it in little chunks. Um, yeah, so that's that's uh, that, that was always the always the uh, the intent to begin with. With the um, with the comic, there's I mean it, I think it's what sepia tone is the correct style. I think that's correct. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is was that always kind of like your natural style, or is that one that you developed for this comic? Because it's some it's very unique and it's striking and beautiful. Thanks. Um, no, it, that evolved a little bit in that um, the original publisher that Rust was with, which was a division of HarperCollins, um, they wanted to do a bunch of graphic novels in black and white. They didn't have the budget to do full color. And so um, the book was originally basically, you know, grayscale. Um, that was one of the things that really uh, got me excited when I first talked with Arkea because I, I could I had a hard time envisioning, you know, colorizing the whole book when I when I decided to take it away from HarperCollins and go to another publisher. And um but I could imagine the whole story as this kind of sepia tone. Um and that was one of the first things that Mark Smiley from Archaea said when he read it. He was like, you know it'd be really cool if we reprinted this in like a sepia tone, like kind of orange and I was just you know, he was already saying things that I was thinking and that, that kind of aligned me with the publisher in a way that made me really excited. So it was a bit of an evolution, but once we, you know, kind of tested it to see how it would look, it was like, oh yeah, this is what we should do. And as long as they were okay with it, I was, I was totally on board. So. How long would did you work on the comic before it was actually produced or published? Oh, <laughs> uh, many years, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I was, um, I was partially into volume three. I can't remember what year it was. I was partially into volume three when it was canceled at HarperCollins and all the rights and the pages came back to me. So I had like over 400 pages of this story sitting on my hard drive. And the first thing I did was I took a year off. I didn't draw at all. I didn't think about it because I kind of burned the candle on both ends. And then after that year, I started taking it out to agents and publishers and, uh, and it eventually landed at Archaea. So it was, you know, I've, I've worked on the first few volumes for years before it even um, even found its final publisher. Did, did the story evolve at all? Like when, when from what you were at Harper's and then to Archaea, did it change at all? Did you like redraw any of the pages, change around the story at all? Yeah, absolutely. It changed a lot. Um, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but it had, it made some, there were some significant changes that, shifted the book from, as I put it, from like a, a mediocre book to a good book. <laughs> um, 
I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the story, but even back years ago when I first started writing and drawing it, you know, I was still learning and there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And that was one of the best things about coming to Archaea is they have great editorial staff. And my, my uh, edit, editor at the time, Rebecca Taylor, um, she was just fantastic. And she just said, I love your book, but I think it needs, um, you know, a couple of scenes here. I think uh, we need to reshuffle this, how this story fits in together here. And there, was, there were kind of minor tweaks, but they made really big changes to the heart of the story that, um, that only a really good editor can do. And, um, and that's, that's been the best thing about being with Arkea is their editors are fantastic and that's really hard to come by. You know, it's, it's really hard to find good editors and I feel really lucky to have um, editors that, that massage the story the way they do. Is there any examples that you can actually tell people who might have read the comic that they would know the difference? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the prologues, uh, which is essentially the first 30 pages of every volume, didn't exist uh, with the previous publisher. So one of the first things, I think this might even have been one of Mark Smiley's ideas as well, is um, the idea of introducing a prologue or a flashback to Jet Jones' origin story. And they, they mentioned that, and I thought it was a great idea. So the, the way that, to me, the way a great editor works is kind of saying, this is the direction you need to go, and I'm not going to tell you where to go and how to do it, but I think this is what's missing. And then they kind of set me free to tell my story. And so those that prologue story didn't used to exist, and it's kind of hard to imagine the book without it now. It adds such dimension to the story. Um, but but uh, but that's the truth. That's that's the uh, um, one of the great things that um, that Rebecca brought to the book. I mean, you've created uh, an amazing world. Um, I don't know how quite to describe it. Not quite steampunk, uh, but it's you know slightly different than the world we live in now. I, I the only thing I can think of is like a mecha design. I I don't know if you've got a better word, but how much. <laughs> I, have you actually planned the world out? You know, have you like really thought out the history of this war that's involved and the the world as is and the countries and cities? And like, how much have you actually created this world? Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, I, I always kind of try to describe it like Middle Earth, which I know is, is, is a high thing to describe it is to align my story with, but um, Middle Earth totally feels like planet Earth in many ways, but it's not at all, you know, and that's the approach I've always taken with the world of rust is basically it, it feels like an alternate universe, but it's, it's not that, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a different planet. Um, at least maybe there's something about Middle Earth. I don't know. Maybe there's another planet in the universe, but, um, but that's kind of how I approach rust is that I've, I've always wanted to keep readers kind of, not sure of where they are and kind of hold on to this mystery of what exactly the setting is. So the, the, the grander questions about the world and the war are um, things that I kind of have a framework for in my mind, but uh, because I knew that the story itself, the heart of the story, which kind of lands uh, in the, this farm, the Taylor's farm, it's about these people and about this family and it's, they're touched by this war, they're affected by it, but there's no need 
for me to go back and tell what the war is about and why it happened, even though I think it'd be so much fun to tell that. And lots of people want to know those questions. I kind of want to save that for something else. And um, so, you know, I'd be lying if I told you, you know, I've got maps up and I know all the countries and I know all the details about the war and the timeline. I don't have lots of the details, but um, I kind of have enough in my mind that, you know, I think, oh man, if, you know, if we could do more rust in the future, it'd be fun to dive into more stories from the war uh, around this particular battle or that particular battle. Um, I think that would be really fun, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't have, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have um, uh, bloodlines and uh, languages figured out. (laughs) (laughs) I, I missed it, but like, how would you describe the technology in the world? Yeah, I don't really describe it as steampunk. I don't. Um, the way I describe it to people is, if there was kind of a, a merging of um, technologies between World War One and World War Two, and people disassembled tractors and tanks and instead built these mechs and these robots, um, you know, skipping over a lot of the complications that are that that are that are in that you know, explanation. That's kind of the best way I describe it is like these, these robots were built essentially out of old tractor parts, you know, um, not like they were recycled, but that that's the technology that we're living in. Um, obviously with, with, um, all these elements of artificial intelligence and stuff like that. So, um, it kind of gives me the license to, to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it. And, uh, yeah, I've never really sat firmly in a genre. I, I wouldn't call it steampunk. I heard some people yeah. call it diesel punk. But, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, that's diesel punk. And I was like, okay, I haven't heard that before, but that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could see that. I couldn't think of exactly the best way to describe it. Um, how much time do you actually do, go to design the robots and the, the technology that's there? Um, the robots I kind of just designed individually and then kind of worked backwards a little bit. So I figured out what I wanted to tell with the story and then kind of worked backwards to figure out how the machines worked and how the robots worked so that they would support the structure of the story. Um, and uh, yeah, but I didn't, um, again, I kind of, I, I kind of touched each robot individually. I do, I would do a lot of sketches, but even the, a lot of the sketches, like for the Model C, infantry robots, they didn't change a whole, a whole lot. They evolved a little bit over time, but once I settled on a design, it was kind of what I was thinking of all along. Um, I've, I often regret that some of the designs aren't as good as, you know, I've been working on this series for years and I feel like I've become a better artist and a better designer. And, um, I wish I could go back and redesign some of the robots, but, but that's, that's what happens when you're an artist, you kind of grow and change and your sensibility and skill changes. So, um, I, you know, I'm, I don't regret the designs I made, but I, you know, I, I wish I could go back and tweak some of them. So there's been three volumes released. You've got the new compilation that's coming out in a couple of weeks. And then I know, I think there's a fourth volume coming out later this year. How long does it actually take you to put volume together? Um, well, um, every volume has been kind of increasingly a little bit more work. And this last volume, volume four is the last one in the story in the series. And, uh, it takes me about, um, about 15 or 16 months from beginning to end. 
but volume four is taking me a little bit longer because um, I uh, my son was born right before I started volume four, so that kind of put me on the bench for a little while. Um, but I'm slowly getting my time and scheduling back and, and getting to work on it. Um, yeah, so volume volume four will be the last book, and that should be out. I think it's actually early next year. I don't think it'll be early later this year. I think it'll be early next year. Yeah. Uh, well, congrats on your son. Has that changed Thanks. at all? Like, has that impacted the fourth volume? Like, has it changed like the story or? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, it. Uh, no, I don't think so because the the story has kind of been written for a while, and so although there may be there may be different perspectives I have on it because it is in a way a lot of the story is about the father and son relationship. Um, it hasn't impacted it enough that it's made big changes. The story has kind of been pretty, you know, pretty solid for the last few years, and I've just been working towards this final volume. So, um, so no, it hasn't. It hasn't changed a lot, but sure, sure makes it a little harder to draw. You said that you're working on the fourth volume. It'll be out next year. You know, have you had the story planned since the beginning? Has the story evolved at all over over the time, other than like the editor's input and stuff like that? Yeah, it, it's changed a little bit. I've I've always said that I always knew where the story was going, but I wasn't always sure how I was going to get there. And so there was um, kind of some pivotal scenes and moments that mostly happened in the second and third volume that um, I wasn't planning on and. And that's what's the really fun thing about being a writer is uh, coming upon a part of the story you realize you didn't know it was going to be in the book, but it has to be from, at least from your own personal perspective, it has to be in there and that's why you write it. And um, I had one of those last moments recently when I just, I had a, a small, uh, a small scene in the fourth volume I hadn't written yet. And it, I came down to it and, I was, I was just surprised. I was like, I didn't know, I didn't know the book was going to end like this. <laughs> and, uh, um, those are, that's kind of what makes it fun being a writer is like, you're sometimes it feels like you're hearing the story for the first time when you sit down to write it. And that doesn't mean that, you know, changes happen and edits get made and all that sort of stuff. But, um, but those little scenes that popped up and surprised me, those, those were the fun parts of the experience. But, by and large, um, it's still kind of the same story it's always been. There's just been small shifts um, to serve uh, uh, specific scenes here and there. Um, where did the actual idea of Jet come from? And and this mysterious character basically running from war. I mean, you said you kind of were you're doodling and coming up with it, but, you know, was it inspired by anything? Is this is kind of an idea that you've had for a while? Um, I think it, it really just started as doodles. It was just kind of like sketches around some concepts and ideas. The, the concept was always this uh, kind of dust belt, um, alternate 1930s era that included a kid with a jetpack, um, And then, and then more structure kind of evolved around that until I actually sat down and wrote the story. Um, but it, uh, I'm, I've always described myself as primarily an artist. So a lot of, 
you know, the initial look and feel of the book and the story came from um, sketches, not from not from writing. So you also work as an animator in the video game industry. So what do you actually do in in that job? Um, actually, at, at the moment, for the last couple of years, I, I should probably update my bio. I'm working as an art director right now, so I don't get to do okay. as much animation as I used to. Um, but I did animation for you know, almost 13 years in the video game industry. So um, the video game industry is fun. It's a good it's a good industry to be in for creative people because it's a good career and you you can make a good living as an artist. Um, and in Seattle, where I live, there's lots of studios, and um, just getting to work with such creative people, such fantastic designers, writers, and artists every day is pretty uh, rewarding. Um, I think the drawback of working in the video game industry is that it's team-oriented, and it's production-based, and it's um, you know a lot of working together with people and working for years on a product to just get to put a little bit of yourself into. And that's what really drove me to comics is at the end of the day, I had to go home and feel like there was something that I owned because I would spend years on a, on a product and put hours and hours of work into it. And then, and then when it was done and shipped, it was like, oh, I, I actually just did this little piece and that wasn't even really totally me. I got a lot of direction on that. And, and I needed something that I could own completely myself from beginning to end. And comics is one of the only things you can do that. Even movies take huge teams, you know. And uh, comics is just that one medium where if you want, you can sit down and write it and draw it. You may not be the best writer. You may not be the best artist. But, you know, those are the two big disciplines of comics that you have to tackle. And if you can, if you can do one and the other, then it's, you know, it's a great thing to do. And even if you have to team up with somebody that's still a way smaller team than uh, – you know, a 30 or 40 person video game team. Did, um, did video games at all influence the storytelling for Rust? Is, you know, did, did how video games produce their story, have people interact with it? Like, basically, I'm trying to get to is how, how did the video game industry or your work in it kind of influence your storytelling with Rust? I don't, um, honestly, I don't think it did. Uh, that's a that's that's a fairly direct answer, but I I don't think that it affected the storytelling. It always affected the artwork because I get to work and build um, as an artist, you know, my skill every day at work. So I was growing as an artist all the time, as I was growing drawing Rust as well. But um, video game doesn't, at least the games I worked on, didn't offer a lot of storytelling elements, and so that was the stuff that I had to teach myself and had to learn from others as much as possible. It wasn't a naturally evolving skill. It was something I had to exercise, um, I guess. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it influenced my storytelling that much. What, uh, what stories do you look at to kind of teach yourself how to, how to do it? Um, I, I try to think about, I try to think outside of, particular, you know, platforms like comics or movies or anything, really. Um, I just try to think about stories that affected me, and I try to figure out why they affected me. And so uh, usually it's movies, I think, because movies are 
um, I often think in kind of acts and like, you know, the kind of the middle, beginning and the end and uh, movies have that. And it's very easy for me to think back and be like, wow, that movie really affected me. Why did that affect me so much? And how can I kind of deconstruct the elements of that story in a way that, um, that teaches me um, how to assemble a story. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty big movie fan. I probably got most of my, most of my inspiration from film, I'd, I'd say. Uh, so a thing that I, I really find fascinating by, about Rust is the character of Jet Jones. So he's this weapon of war that was built, and he's rejecting what his purpose is and, and running from it. And it, it, to me, it's, it's really interesting that, and that there's a hell of a lot of statements about war in general, soldiers, um, you know, PTSD even. It, are these things yeah. that were on your mind when telling the story, or is, is this something you actually kind of wanted to discuss with it? Um, no, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely was thinking about those things. I, I think with the story of Jet Jones and his kind of rejecting his purpose, um, uh, what, you know, what he was built for, I, I'm thinking more about the themes of kind of responsibility and, um, destiny and choice, really the things that human beings struggle with. But that's what I find fascinating about kind of the whole, you know, smart robot or artificial intelligent kind of stories is that you can kind of uh, dilute those problems down to its, you know, to the most basic problem, like that you would, something that a robot is programmed to do, do they do this or do they do that? And why do they do it? And some of those questions we could ask about ourselves as human beings. And um, so that's kind of, uh, the the thought process, I guess, that inspires me in writing the story around Rust and his origins. War, uh, I think, is um, um, war tells a lot about humanity and about the decisions that humans make in these great wars that we've had on Earth, you know. And it's in that crucible of, you know, this terrible thing that... Um, a lot of things get revealed about the essence of humanity. And so it's a, it's a fairly uh, easy setting to work in, I guess, is the way to say it for storytelling. Um, people are terrible and they do terrible things to each other. And um, technology flourishes when, when lives are at stake and power and all that stuff. So I don't, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but <laughs> that, that's kind of what, what my approach has been. Yeah, I mean the, the the story, you know, replace uh, jet with nuclear bomb, and you basically have uh, an allegory for the creation of the atom bomb, right? Yeah, and and you know, I I never thought about that when I initially wrote the story of Rust, and now just recently in the last year, I've been I'm listening to a few books about the Manhattan Project and. Um, and elements of the late Second World War and Hiroshima and all that stuff, and it's um, it has caused me to think about the story a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's the kind of stuff that reveals a lot about people's true nature, and th that's what makes war an easy uh, setting for storytelling. I think. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of the the Oppenheimer quote about um, his thoughts post the the atom bomb about how he didn't want to release the genie or now the genie's released, you know, that, that type of thing. I, I reading the, the, the comic that's going to coming out, the boy soldier, I feel like there's somewhat of a moment of that when jets having a moment with, with the scientist that kind of created him, I, I got this weird vibe of, of almost like the scientist was just like, you were uh, you're a necessity to, to bring about peace. But, you know, I got this vibe from the scientist that he himself wasn't quite sure if he unleashed, um, like a demon based, you know, a, a weapon that's kind of out of control. Right. Yeah. I, I think the quote, I'm, I don't want to misquote, but I think it's something like I, I oftentimes said, I've become the destroyer of worlds. Um, yeah. Or I've become, become death the destroyer of worlds. I think he was quoting some other religious text and that this was after, I don't know if it was after the bomb was first dropped, but, um, <clears throat> or after the testing, but um, yeah, there's a lot of complexity to that relationship between uh, the scientist and Jet, um, and uh, it goes back and forth between uh, kind of me putting myself in the situation of the scientist because he's a human element, and so you think about those decisions that people make and that people have made about war and weapons. Um, but then the other side of it is putting yourself in Jet's position. Um, and it's, it's what I've often referred to as kind of that conversation with God. Um, that's how I refer to that, that conversation that Jet has with the scientist um, in the prologue book that comes out next, next March and in the, the prologues of the first couple of volumes, um, that he's, he's basically getting that opportunity to talk to his maker and say, why did you make me like this? Why did, why did you allow me to have choices that would cause such harm it seems like the world would be a better place if you had programmed me like the other robots and um that's uh that's a question that you know that i've kind of asked in my mind or or is on the list of questions that you know i have asked before um and maybe other people don't ask that but to me it was just an interesting way to to frame that relationship with those two people as a uh, robot boy talking to his maker, but also the human being talking to the weapon. Um, yeah. You know, kind of going with that that parallel, the, the other thing I thought was really interesting reading it through is there's a segment where uh, one side's got their robot, which almost was, is a suicide bomber that is, felt like it was a nuclear bomb based off of the, the cloud it was going. And then you have Jet and his almost like an EMP type weapon, which is uh, more humane in a weird way. Uh, you know, it, it's a weird uh, moment that, you know, you see the a nuclear weapon is in, used in World War II and then what has evolved since as far as warfare. You kind of just see it right there of, of war creating one and then leading to that next horrific weapon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I had intended for both of those weapons to look devastating but different. And um and Jet Jet's uh his his uh energy blast is um hopefully it's depicted people read it as, as very, very destructive. I wanted the sense of you know, that he kinda cleared the playing field a little bit. Um so in a sense that that's a little bit more of of uh 
analogous to to an atomic bomb, whereas um, the bomb that goes off earlier in the drone mech is uh, probably smaller in scale, but still, yeah, obviously still has that mushroom cloud. Um, yeah, that's an inter interesting way to look at it. I didn't think about how they looked different from each other, but I wanted Jet's weapon to look very distinct, um, electronic, almost almost magical, but definitely not magic, you know, just something really different and distinct from everything else in the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely achieved that. Uh, moving forward kind of in the story a little bit, you, you got Jet on this farm trying to get away from the war and, and live somewhat a normal life. You know, when you were working on this, you know, we've been in through wars for uh, 15 years now, roughly. Um, you know, were you thinking of soldiers coming home afterwards and attempting to uh, get back into society and, and live a normal life? Um, a little bit. Um, I, re I refer to the war in Rust as the Great Long War because it, it just spanned uh, decades when you look at the timeline. Um, but um, I think that was what drove a lot of the idea of the use of robots on the farm was kind of along the lines of what happened with in, in, in our history with companies like uh, BMW that were making airplanes, you know, for, for uh, warfare purposes and had to kind of change gears and start making, you know, vehicles that consumers would buy. Um, and similarly, I pictured that, you know, once the war is ended or as it's ending, these used up um, robots kind of end up littering society and they get turned into what what they're needed for, which is farming, you know, if, um, if that makes any sense. So that was kind of one of the big ideas I had around the idea of the farm and putting these robots on the farm that are working kind of like drones, um, but a little bit more complex than people think that they are. And that's the, that's the, the darkness in the machines, I guess, you know, the, the, uh, um, some of the stuff that's kind of revealed in volume three with the, uh, robot and the chicken scene. I don't know. I don't know if you got that far yet, but. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was, that was one of my favorite, favorite scenes to draw. <laughs> I've had that idea for a long time. So, but it's that kind of stuff that makes you, you know, I wanted the reader to be like, okay, we, we, and they do not know what these machines are capable of or why exactly they're acting and doing what they're doing. So that, that unpredictability I think is um, terrifying and, um, and a, a big driver to the story. Um the 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 interesting thing about the robots being used by society and kind of being reclaimed post war has a very like swords to plowshare vibe about it um with not just you know repurposing weapons for everyday use and you kind of talked about BMW shifting gears but just that that idea of war really driving society i mean World War II kickstarted, you know, kickstarted the American economy and led to all sorts of improvements. Um, I mean, it, it's something to the to the story. I think it's it's a, a, a fascinating statement and a really interesting aspect of the book. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going for that. I think I <clears throat> I think the way I pictured the the society that the tailors are living in in that 
that little world that we're getting to peek into that part of that part of the world is kind of what I was thinking of as a, a war that's just kind of sucked the, the world dry, you know, like it just keeps going on and on to the point that the people that are holding up the industry almost can't do it anymore. Um, um, so that's, that's kind of how I pictured that, you know, these farmers that can, that are barely um, subsistence farmers and barely making a living, let alone being able to eat their own, um, uh, their own food. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that comes up. With the with the the story in the world as a whole, you kind of mentioned before that you you thought about maybe expanding upon it. Is there a chance that we will actually see that? Uh, yeah, I sure hope so. I I, I don't like to make promises because obviously it takes me a long time to do a book. Um, there's other formats I'd love to do. I, I'd like a, I mean, I don't know how much I I should talk about, but I, I would love to do some kind of anthology. I'd love to have get together and write, you know, a collection of stories that are based in the world that would, uh, you know, let us see more behind the curtain of the structure of the world of rust and, or the story behind the war. I think that would be really interesting. Um, so yeah, I would, I would love to do more. I, I would say that after rust is done, after I'm done the fourth volume, I would like to move on to another book because I've been working on rust for so long. I would like to continue to write rust stories. So in a perfect world in my mind, I'd be able to write some more Rust stories that maybe somebody else could draw, which I, I don't know if that would be effective or not. And then, um, I mean, it'd be interesting to me, but I don't know if that matters. And, um, but there's other stories I would like to tell besides Rust and maybe they're, maybe they're like Rust. Maybe they're not as good. I don't, I don't know, but, um, there's just lots of other stuff I'd like to do. So I don't want to commit <laughs> the rest of my life to telling a story of Rust, but if the opportunity presents itself, yeah, I would absolutely jump on on uh, the ability to, to tell more. Um, I don't no I don't know where it stands. I have no idea if this is opening up a, a wound or anything like that. But can you say anything about the the Rust film that may or may not happen? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, they're they're familiar Hollywood wounds. <laughs> um, <clears throat> No, I, it, I I can't really say a whole lot except um, except that it's uh, what can I say to think about it. Yeah, I, I can't really say a whole lot right now. There's still there's still a lot of interest in it, but um, I will say the ball was rolling very steadily and quickly for a couple of years, and then um, and then it slowed down quite quickly. So um, there are still people that are really interested in it, and there's lots of movies that take many, many years to get made. So, you know, there's no way I could say that it's, it's dead, but um, it's it's not highest priority for me right now. So I'm going to focus on getting the books out and uh, um, hopefully it still continues. The books continue to inspire, uh, you know, filmmakers and producers as it, as it has in the past. That would be great. Is that cryptic enough say- of an answer? <laughs> Yeah, no. So the one question I do have on it, um, do you know if they were thinking of doing it as a live action or animated? Like, I, I love the, the series. You know, I've read it up, and I've actually read it multiple times. I actually have tools trying to imagine it as a live action thing instead of an animated film in your style. Like, as, as that style, I think it would be so beautiful. Yeah, uh, thanks. I, I think so, too. I think it would make a fantastic animated movie. 
Um, it was optioned as a live action movie, so it was in production as a live action movie. And um, there's multiple reasons for that. And I kind of share your experience a little bit in that when initially when it was optioned by Fox and they wanted to make a live action movie, I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can trip, but um, that is, that is what's great about working with other creative people, even, you know, Hollywood and filmmakers, they show you a vision of your story that you hadn't imagined before. And um, that happened with Russ. That was just like, Oh my gosh, this would be such a fantastic live action movie. Like just, you know, like nothing I could have imagined and yet still really true to the book for fans, you know? Um, but, and, and I mean, just logistically as well, I mean, it's upwards of a hundred to 150 million to make an animated movie these days where uh, live action movies, even with heavy special effects can be done for, you know, 50 to $80 million. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's actually cheaper to make a live action movie. It makes it less of a gamble. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would take it either way. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not picking favorites. <laughs> so so uh, do we need to start the change.org petition to make this happen for you? <laughs> um, yes, you can do that. I mean, all it takes is, uh, tweeting about it. Um, you know, posting about it, uh, uh, buying books. I mean, all that stuff helps. Uh, I, I would love to see the movie get made. And, and I still believe that, that one day, uh, we will, but um, uh, the fans have a lot more power than they think. And I think that we're kind of coming into a day and age where it's that realization starting to happen, you know, when people see, you know, Neil Blomkamp Instagram, a few of his sketches for alien. And then all of a sudden it's just kind of happening. It's like, uh, you know, the general audience doesn't realize how, how powerful their vote is when they say, Oh man, we want to see this movie. Deadpool, I think, is another example of that too. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you're you're working on the fourth volume now. What's kind of going through your your mind as you're you're working on it and wrapping up the the four volume series? Um, I I think a a little bit of a bittersweetness. Um, I'm thinking about it more now than I have before because um, this. A prologue book is coming out, the launch of the soft cover, and um, it's it's always exciting when I have a book coming out because I get to you know talk about it and I get to get people to read it again, and especially this one is a different format they'll be reading, and it just reminds me that one one day I'll be doing this for the last time. It'll be the last book, and that's both exciting because I've been working so hard this for so many years, and I love telling the story but it's also, uh, it'll be really hard for me because I've actually gotten used to, you know, thinking about the next book and going, going to Comic-Cons and getting to hear back, you know, from people that, that say they like the book. That's, that's an experience that only creators get to share, you know, and um, when it's all over, it'll be kind of sad. <laughs> so I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to get on something else or, or start another rest series or something. I'm not sure, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll let it, I'll let it end how I'd plan to end it. And then I'll, I'll see what happens from there. I, I love Russ. So I, you know what my vote is. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Brett. So you wait, you're voting for volume five. Is that what you want? <laughs> uh, volume five, whole new story, whatever you want to do. I like the <laughs> anthology idea. 
I do too. I mean, um, it's a little selfish because I would get to watch other artists. I would get to do that thing that all artists dream of, right? Which is go and like pick some artists and say, Hey, would you, would you draw my story for me? Um, that would be so, would be so cool for me. I'm not sure how Russ fans would see that because a lot of people have, you know, felt that I tell stories kind of uniquely, um, which, which I am, that's, that's what I've always been trying to do, but, um, you know, handing a, a rust script to somebody like, I don't know, David Peterson, Jake Parker. I mean, not that they would take the time to draw rust, but I just think that would be so interesting to see. Well, speaking of the the way you tell the story is actually a really good question. The, the thing I've noticed off of the three volumes and the boy soldier, a lot of the story is silent. It's just the, the imagery and a character is standing or where he's looking tells the story itself. Um, you know, what kind of draws you to, to that sort of storytelling? It, it's something you don't see very often, especially in comics. Yeah. Um, I think because depending on how you read comics, you, it could make your experience actually really bad. And I find it very interesting that I hear fans say both things. They say, um, I, I didn't like Rust because it was too fast, because I read it too fast, because there's no words, and or I didn't like Rust because uh, it was too slow, because it was just a bunch of pictures and it was just quiet and not a lot happened. And I, I find both those criticisms really interesting because, you know, I'm, in a way I'm, I'm going for aspects of both. Um, but it, it happened in a really strange way on one of the first couple of pages of comics I was working on and I'd posted on a forum uh, somewhere years ago and I had some narration in the panels of this character that was telling a story and somebody posted on this forum like, you know what, your panels kind of tell the story without the text. What would happen if you removed the text? Does the, does the story still read? And so I, I thought that was a really interesting comment. So I tried that. I removed all the narration. And then the story was suddenly more interesting to me because I was inferring things about the character. And it made me want to draw better because I wanted to really show his body language, the character's body language, or his facial expression. I wanted the reader to have to be thinking about what they were thinking instead of reading it. And uh, I found that to be really exciting and fun. And that that obviously just kind of led into rust and the way that I tell the story in rust. It's if I don't have to have text, I don't want to put it in there. And I've struggled with that sometimes because I've heard some rules. Like I think Mike Mignola says you need to have a certain amount of text on every page, even if it's just to get the reader to hang there long enough to read the images. And um, that swayed me a lot where I'm like, oh, maybe I should put more text in. And um, but at the end of the day, I try to just, I try to just stick with my gut and just tell it the way I've been telling it for the last few years and try not to change it too much. Um, and that means for a lot of, a lot of very silent pages. Yeah. I'm a fan of it. Like I, I find myself lingering on the pages and looking at panels and I mean, even though Jed often has his goggles on, you're still looking at his eyes and maybe his forehead or just a little bit of a, a hint on his face as to what he's thinking. I, to me, the lack of words actually gets me to linger longer on the page and, and figure out what's going on through his mind. And to me, that's it's fantastic storytelling. You can still do all that with a character who's wearing goggles pretty much all the time. 
Yeah, I know that's that he's the hugest challenge. And, um, this is, this is like, I'll, I'll let you see some of my you know thought process as an artist is I knew that was going to be a challenge. And that's why I placed the stitching on, on his helmet, the way that I did his, his leather helmet, because at a certain angle, they kind of looked like eyebrows pointed down. But if I want to just take the artistic license to soften that angle and show that he's in distress or his mouth position or whatever. But, you know, often if I want to show Jet angry or, or you know, exhibiting aggression, it's going to be a down shot because it's going to look a little bit more like angry lines on the eyes. And if he's in pain or suffering, it's going to be an upshot because that's going to make him look less defiant because his eyes will be in the shape of upturned eyebrows. <laughs> so, that, and that it's, it's very difficult to do because even with those tricks, I still feel like I'm really just mostly working with his mouth and pretty soon I realize I need to figure out some more positions for somebody in agony to show a mouth position, you know, to, to draw a mouth position. It's, it's, um, it's been a good challenge as an artist. It's, I, I love it. As I said, I mean, I think the art's amazing. Um, you know, I, I do collect art myself and this is something I, you know, someday I hope to get a page from it. I, I enjoy it so much. Uh, well, uh, the, the, the pages, uh, the pages, unfortunately, um, some of them exist and some of them don't because I switched <laughs> over to digital a long time ago and the pages that do exist, surprisingly, people don't know this, but it's the whole book was done in pencil. Um, that was one thing I took from Kazoo years ago. It was like, Oh, I don't have to be an inker. I can just pencil this if I want. And, uh, so the pages that exist are, are very kind of zombie they're not pretty people have asked like you know by original artwork and i'm like it's actually not very pretty it's like you know a panel cut out from over here and taped to this one and scanned in separately and you know i i kind of take the do whatever it takes approach instead of you know ending up with a pretty piece of artwork i can sell which is too bad because i could make a lot of money maybe if i just sold the pages but (laughs) (laughs) but uh they 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 generally don't exist i don't know i might buy that i think that's fascinating Oh yeah, well I'll I'll keep it in mind. Uh so you've got this the new volume coming out uh that is uh, the never seen uh, before seen preludes to the upcoming Rust uh volume four, the Boy Soldier collection. For for those listening that might not know, um before you know we kinda wrap up the show, what should they expect uh, come March twenty third? Yeah, um, I've been really interested in talking directly to fans and to people that are interested in the book because I was a little bit worried that with this volume, they'd be confused. The first thing people would ask is, is this volume four? How come it doesn't say volume four? Where's volume four? Um, And that makes me sad because I'm (laughs) working working really hard on volume four. Um, But no, what, what I've always wanted to do, I love the way that Archaea did rust and I, I don't have anything to do with that they just they said hey we want to print this in hardcover you know cloth wrapped and i was just like oh my gosh are you sure that sounds amazing so what they produce with these beautiful books like Arcadia does so well but the uh, negative aspect to that is that it's a very expensive book and this is an all ages book and it, i would love to get it into the hands of more kids and not only that but i mean even if, even if it's not the hands of kids when I have four volumes and they're you know, 25 bucks a pop, that's a lot to ask of somebody coming into a show 
you know, that might be there to spend, you know, 50 bucks or whatever. Um, so I've always been interested in doing a soft cover version of the series, but we were kind of waiting for the right time. I pitched this idea to Archaea, feels like longer than last year, but maybe it was just last year. When I, I was, I said, you know, what if we took, because the prologues are their own story that I'm telling kind of chronologically backwards, like kind of memento style. What if we pulled them all out of every volume, including the fourth volume, which I was just kind of wrapping up that prologue section, and we arranged it chronologically and released that as its own separate book. And, and that could be the first soft cover. And then after that would come volume one in soft cover, but without the first 30 pages that the hardcover has, because you've already read them. And I, I, I literally threw it out there as kind of just an idea. And I, I remember my Rebecca, my editor, she was like, uh, wow, that sounds kind of cool. Huh? Uh, I'm going to think about that. And then it, it wasn't that, that, uh, that much later that she called back and said that we're, that's what we want to do. We really want to do that. And I was like, Oh, you guys are going to do that. Well, wait, hold on. Let me read it that way. <laughs> Cause <laughs> I had kind of just thrown out the idea, but, we had to like assemble the PDF and read the book in that format because I, I didn't write it that way. I, I actually wrote it backwards so we weren't sure what it would feel like. So we put it together and read it as a PDF and I was like, wow, that actually works as its own story. I think that really could be its own volume. Um, so I was always concerned that people would be confused and, you know, is this the new volume one and new readers that haven't read it before, they'd be really confused. So, uh, so we call it volume zero. Um, I really wanted to just call it the prologues, but um, we decided to call it the prologue, uh, the boy soldier, and uh, I think that's appropriate. So, so that's how it came to be. Interesting. Uh, so we are coming up on the hour, and I've, I've taken a hell of a lot of your time, and I appreciate it because I'm actually a huge fan of Rust, and you <laughs> want to promote it, uh, so I'm happy to do it. Uh, for all our guests, we give them the uh, platform to uh, promote themselves where our listeners can find them online. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, that's where I'm, I'm uh, at Royden Lep. And that's where I try to announce Rust stuff. Sometimes Rust uh, post some pictures. Um, I have a Rust Facebook page that's you know fairly up to date. And I just recently started Instagram because I felt like I needed to. Um, and I post a lot of other, a lot of my other artwork on Instagram. And that's uh, my Instagram handle is Royden.Lep. So you can go to Instagram and see a lot of my other artwork that doesn't have anything to do with Russ, a lot more of my video game concepts and, and other work that I've done. Although I will also post Russ stuff on Instagram as well. Um, and if you want to see other pieces of my portfolio, I, I've got a website online if you Easiest, easiest to find me if you Google my name. Thanks to my mom and dad, they gave me a, a good internet name. So I think I'm at roydenlep.blogspot.com is my online portfolio. Well, appreciate you coming on and uh, chatting with me. Um, and thanks again. I really, really appreciate it. And can't stress enough how much I, I enjoy Rust and looking forward to the fourth volume. That's great. Thanks, Brett. I, I, Always enjoy uh, talking about it. So thanks for having me on for such a long amount of time, and uh, I'm I'm glad you're you're looking forward to the next volume. I'm I'm working as fast as I can.
<laughs> no, appreciate it. We'll, we'll we'll let you go so you can get back to work. Okay. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, thank you. And that uh, helps us wrap up uh, the latest episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Um, that was our guest, Royden Lepp, uh, who was on to discuss Rust the Boy Soldier out March 23rd from Arkea and Boom Studios. I, I can't stress it enough. It's a fantastic story. I've read all three volumes, and including The Boy Soldier, uh, Volume Zero, uh, and love it. Absolutely, absolutely love it. It's a great uh, comic that I think is pretty appropriate for people of all ages. Um, it's a beautifully uh, written. The art is absolutely amazing. Um, as I said, if I could if I could buy original art of it, I would in a second. I just think it's that fantastic. Um, so head to your shop on March 23rd to grab that. And while you're at it, if you haven't bought it already, catch uh, volumes one through three. You won't be disappointed. It's I'm, I can't stress how wonderful it is. It's definitely a series I recommend to folks uh, to check out if they're uh, looking for comic suggestions. So it's on my list of uh, comics folks should, uh, should maybe uh, read and uh, get them out of uh, the mainstream too. So as always, thank you for listening. This has been Graphic Policy Radio. You can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. As always, thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, I do believe there's going to be a new Venture Brothers podcast this Wednesday for those that are listening. I believe we're going to be off next Monday as they break, but we'll be right back on the air afterwards. As always, you can check Blog Talk Radio to find the latest episodes. Uh, those who can late here or want to listen again or share it around, uh, the episode will be posted to Blog Talk Radio in probably about an hour or so, as well as uh, uploaded to iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, I'm guessing about an hour after this. Well, I really don't know how long that takes. And tomorrow will be uploaded to SoundCloud and posted to our site, so you can listen to it again or share it with your friends. So thank you for listening. This is Brett, Graphic Policy Radio. Until next time, keep it geeky.